I'll say more about this in a moment, but it occurred to me that in, on some level, the, the day that Jesus ascended, at least at first, had to be for the disciples the worst day ever. I mean, think about the fact he's gone for good and he's not coming back. So as preachers do, I was thinking, how can I introduce the idea of the worst day ever for my introduction? And it occurred to me that every year for about 20 plus years here at Corinth, the Sunday after Easter was Holy Humor Sunday. And some very wise people finally talked me out of that, out of doing that every year automatically. And so we don't do Holy Humor Sunday anymore on the Sunday after Easter. And I'm kind of glad because today it was a little bit uh, hectic anyway. Linda and I have been gone all week. But, um, so, but I still thought maybe it'd be good to bring some kind of humor into the sermon introduction to remember Holy Humor Sunday. So then I go like, okay, what can I do? Worst day ever, a little bit of humor. And I came across a story that was first um, made famous in 1958 by a British comedian by the name of Gerard Hoffnung. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not. Some people say this story is true. Others seem to feel like it has been altered. It's been shared in various forms by comedians and preachers and physics teachers and also probably insurance adjusters. It comes in the form of a letter, and here it is. Dear Sir, I am writing in response to your request for additional information in my insurance claim in block number three of the accident reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You asked for a fuller explanation, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I found I had some bricks left over, which, when weighed later, were found to weigh 240 pounds. Rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a a pulley which was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went down and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 240 pounds of bricks. You will note on the accident reporting form that my weight is 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel which was now proceeding downward at an equally impressive speed. This explains the fractured skull, minor abrasions, and the broken collarbone as listed in Section 3 of the accident reporting form. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley, which I mentioned in paragraph 2 of this correspondence, Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold the rope in spite of the excruciating pain I was beginning now to experience. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building, and in the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. 
This accounts for the two fractured ankles, broken tooth, and severe lacerations of my legs and the lower body. Here, my luck began to change somewhat slightly. The encounter with the barrel seemed to slow me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks, and fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the pile of bricks in pain, unable to move, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and my composure, and I let go of the rope. I lay there watching the empty barrel begin its journey back down onto me. This explains the two broken legs. I hope this answers your inquiry. Worst day ever, right? So did Jesus' disciples feel that way when Good Friday was on their minds and Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, I think Good Friday seemed like at the time the worst day ever. But you know, the resurrection came only two days later. And I think even though they recalled the scattering and the denials when when he needed them most, he had been back now for 40 days. And they had experienced him teaching them and long enough for them to get comfortable with the fact, hey, Jesus is back, but on this day, when they watched Jesus leave, their first reaction had to be, this is the worst day ever. What are we going to do without Jesus? Since the beginning of Lent several weeks ago, we have been studying what Christians believe about Jesus. So let me just do a little bit of review here. So you kind of know where we've come. This is the second paragraph of the Apostles' Creed. And it begins, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. So we call Jesus the incomparable one, the one and only Son of God. This is who we're talking about. But guess what? We get to call him Jesus, which is a very friendly, personal name. Yet he's the incomparable one. Our Lord, Lord is a powerful word with lots of meanings, but... The way the Apostle Paul uses it, the way the Creed uses it, when we call him our Lord, we are saying he is equal to the Father. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. I believe in Jesus, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. When we preached on this, I said Jesus was a zygote. He was an embryo. He was a toddler. He was a little boy. Jesus was a teenager. He was a young adult. He was a son. He was a brother. He was, he was a friend He was a teacher. Jesus was a common laborer in his father's carpenter trade. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. His full humanity is on display in the creed. And then it jumps from there to suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we recall that the greatest suffering ever endured was inflicted on the best person who ever lived to bring about the greatest good possible, the salvation of humanity. And then was crucified, dead, and buried. What matters to the gospel is not so much Jesus' physical suffering, the crucifixion, but his declaration, it is finished, it's done. He endured all of that for you and me, and Jesus paid it all. We're good because of what he did. And then that phrase that sort of puzzles people, he descended into hell. Jesus took our hell in every sense of the word, but specifically We say this because Jesus gloriously emptied Hades, also known as paradise. Believers who had died before, they were released from there. And you don't have to go there to that holding place. You can go directly into the Father's presence 
when you pass from this life in Jesus. And then last week on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He triumphed over sin and death. Mary Magdalene wanted to hold on to him, but what she was holding on to was actually a lesser version of him than had come back from the grave in his glorious resurrection body. And he said, I'm leaving here. I'm ascending to the Father. And it is to that now that we turn our attention. So let's talk about these next three phrases in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Luke opens Acts by saying that Jesus spent 40 days instructing his disciples about the kingdom of heaven, what's the kingdom of God look like, and also giving them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Wouldn't you love to know more of the stories that Jesus told and of his teachings during that time of his life? We don't get a lot of details. We just know that that's what he talked about. And the disciples, for whatever reason, seemed still very, very confused at that point. And so on the day of his ascension, meaning, remember, they had had three years with him and then seven more weeks of Jesus giving them sort of his classroom, his, you know, uh, small group lectures, they ask him, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin said of this quote, there are as many errors as words in their question. They still don't understand, after all this time, what the kingdom is, that it's not now, that it's not about Israel, that it's not about them, and more importantly, they still don't get God. So they're really still very confused. And the text actually implies that they kept asking him that. All of us who are parents and have had young children know about the question, are we there yet? Are we almost there? I have a brother, Doug, who said that he came up with what he thought was an ingenious answer to that question when his, little, when his children were little. And he had a, the oldest son, Buck, so we say, are we there yet? And Doug goes like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this once and for all. Okay, Buck, we're right there at milepost number 286. You can read numbers. Our destination is at milepost number 524. So now you will know how, you don't have to ask me, are we there yet? When we get close to 524, you'll know we're there yet. Well, guess what happened? Doug said it was the longest trip they ever had because Buck read every single milepost. Dad, we're at 288 now. Hey, Dad, look, it's 289. And about 359, you're like, I don't think I can endure this. So there's something about human psyche. Patience does not seem to be natural for us. It's not hardwired into us. And Jesus, maybe for that reason, doesn't give them mile mile markers. He doesn't say these are all the things that you you can watch for. What he does in other passages is he gives them some specific signs. But as a a minister said yesterday, I was listening to a sermon on this, and he said they're kind of like valleys and hills, and you can't always tell when you're crossing a hill and you think, well, we're getting closer, but then there's another valley ahead. And indeed, uh, there's kind of a, a waxing and waning of these signs through history. So that's why Jesus says never predict the date. I'm not going to tell you when, just wait. The Father has it, right? The Father's got this. So what Jesus does say to them is, I've got a job for you. You will be my witnesses, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. More on that verse later. Later. 
And then in verse 9, we come to the ascension proper. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. So a balloon's not a bad way to visualize this. A helium balloon, he just kind of levitates is the way I picture it. But in the Bible, except when rain is involved, a cloud always indicates the presence and glory of God. So this is actually the last time when the disciples see physically the glory of God connected to Jesus' physical person. So there were a number of others, but this is the last time where they go like, okay, there's a cloud that represents the glory of God. It is a common belief among Christians that Easter is as good as it gets. Like the resurrection story is the high point. Everything builds up to Easter, and then after Easter, it kind of goes back down. And you can tell by looking around you, if you were here last Sunday, there are a lot more people who think it's important to come to church on Easter Sunday than the Sunday after Easter. So thank you for loving Jesus to come back on the Sunday after Easter. But it's because in some way we tend to think like the resurrection is as good as it gets. We had the crucifixion and then Easter. He came back from the dead. Great. There's, no, there's nothing better than that. Actually, there is. And what we find in the creed is three steps of glory that actually enhance Jesus' glory past Easter Sunday. And the first one is that he ascended into heaven. Why is that even better? Think about where he's going, where he is. The Apostle Paul says he has been exalted to the highest place and God has given him the name that is above every name. It's actually even better than coming out of a tomb, which is pictured behind me in the stained glass window, that Jesus is heading back up and experiencing and and visually they can see the glory of God in that cloud. This is even better than the resurrection. This is who Jesus is. He is again one with the Father in his presence again. The ascension is wonderful news and it would take the disciples a long time to figure it out, but that day they thought was the worst day ever was actually the best day ever because Jesus had gone to the Father. Why is that such good news for us? Because as long as Jesus is on earth, as we said last week, he can only be in one place at one time. And Jesus said, your down payment that I'm coming again is actually that I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And when I'm gone, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he can be with you wherever you are, all around this globe, whatever's going on in your world. I can be with you. So the ascension actually enables the Holy Spirit to come and enables him to be with us wherever we are. That's why the ascension is important. So what happens next? Well, that's exactly what the disciples are wondering. He goes up and they just stand there staring. This is where I I wish Wes had actually brought a balloon. So just everybody for a minute, just stare up at the ceiling for a minute. I don't know if it was the last time you did that, but just look up because you gotta, you got to feel what the disciples are feeling there, and they're going like, what happens next? He's gone. He's disappeared. So Luke says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. So picture them, their mouths open, their eyes moist, their hearts pounding, their minds racing. And do you know where he went after he went through that cloud? And do you know what he's doing? Because again, we talk a lot about his suffering and death. We talk about his resurrection. But you know, do you know what Scripture says he's doing now? And the answer to that question is so important that almost every, every, almost every New Testament writer refers to this next phrase. He's sitting at the right hand of God. You may think it's like isolated, 
Matthew talks about it. Mark talks about it. Luke talks about it. John talks about it. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. The writer of Hebrews talks about it. Everybody but James or Jude who writes a letter to the new, uh, in the New Testament at some point or another in their writings talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. That's how important it is. So, my hunch is that if you've heard that phrase, and you have in traditional service, if you say the Apostles' Creed, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, you haven't thought a lot about what it means. So again, can you bring up a mental image of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God? Does it mean like there's a great big throne there, and God sits on the big throne, and there's kind of a junior throne to his right, and Jesus can sit down... On the junior throne, like next to the Father. And I just want to say, if that in some way helps you visualize this, it's really okay. Every description of heaven is in some way a metaphor. It's an analogy. It's a way of our picturing in the ways that our human experience can, based on our own you know, perceptions, our own experiences, what we've seen and heard. Everything we read in the Bible about heaven builds on what we know to try to describe the indescribable, but the reality is so much greater. So, yes, in some sense, if it helps you to think of Jesus sitting on this throne beside God's throne, it's okay. But the reality is so much deeper than that. And Jesus himself is the one that started all this talk. Do you remember the two times that Jesus talked about being at the right hand of God? The first one was on Tuesday before he died on Friday. And on Tuesday of that week, Jesus was in the temple, and the religious leaders were trying to trap him with some really hard questions. But every time they asked him a hard question, he gave an answer that was so wise, and they felt foolish again. Nobody could come up with a question to trap Jesus. And the reason they wanted to ask him a question to trap him is because they needed to find an excuse to put him to death. And so we need him to say something that then we can take to Pilate, or we can say for ourselves, okay, then he's got to die. And so nothing that happens actually achieves that goal. So Jesus is going to help them out. Now, why would Jesus help them out? Because he knows that he needs to die, and so they can't trap him. So Jesus then says, well, let me go. i got a question for you. And his question is, uh, whose son is the Messiah when he comes? And that's kind of an obvious biblical answer from their perspective. And they say, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus says, well, then why does David call the Messiah Lord And Jesus quotes from a Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. This is the first time we find Jesus using this phrase. And basically, uh, he's giving them some ammunition. Now, they don't fully get it yet. And so three days later is the second time Jesus used it. So this time it's Friday morning. He dies that day. It's Friday morning. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. And the high priest says to him, Are you the Messiah? Yes or no? Give me a straight answer. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see me sitting at the right hand of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. And they know exactly what he means. And they say, there, we got it. Blasphemy. He's got to die. So Jesus himself, in a sense, brings this on himself with this talk about being at the right hand of God. He's the one who started it. But then as the New Testament plays out, it's repeated. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching and he says, You killed him, but God raised him from the dead and now he is seated at the right hand of God. 
a few chapters later, Stephen is getting ready to die under a, a, a hailstorm uh, of stones, right? They're getting ready to kill him. And just before he loses consciousness, Stephen says, I see heaven opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, that's one of the places where he says, okay, there has to be a metaphor because in this place he's standing instead of sitting, right? But he says, like, Jesus is at the right hand of God. And then there are places sprinkled all the way through the New Testament letters that are really good news that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Let me give you just a few of them. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, do you know what he's doing there? He's praying for you. He is interceding for you. Do you think anybody could ever be against you if Jesus is for you at the right hand of God? And then the writer of Hebrews says that, the, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because his sacrifice for sins was complete. The Old Testament priests, whenever they were giving a sacrifice, would always have to be standing. And sometimes it's a very long work day to, to uh, kill and sacrifice hundreds of animals. But at the end of the day, their work was done. They would sit down, but they had to get up and do it the next day. And the writer of Hebrews says this picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God means that his work is finished. He only had to offer sacrifice once for all. It's done. He's finished his work. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 3.22 that he is sitting at the right hand of God because he has authority over all of the heavenly hosts. So we seminary types call this Jesus' session. So that word just means sitting, and it's a reminder that when you, you sit, when either your work is done or you're like the CEO and you're sitting at the head of the table and everybody else has to stand up when you come in, but you sit down because you're in charge, or when you're doing your work from this place of authority, like you're in power, you sit, right? And so this is the idea of the session or the, seat, the sitting of Jesus. And if the resurrection wasn't glorious enough, and the ascension wasn't glory enough. Now we have a Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of God in the place of power and honor. And if that's not enough, we get to this final phrase in the second paragraph of the creed, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So the disciples are paralyzed. They're looking up at the cloud. And Jesus has disappeared. And two angels appear. And they're dressed in white. And they have a message from God. So the important thing about angels in the Bible is whenever there are angels, this is a God intervention. This is a God moment. It's why they were at the tomb. It's why they're at the essential, ascension. So they say, this is our message. Men of Galilee, I know you. I know who you are. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And these words are the foundation of Christian belief about the return of Christ. The same Jesus in the same way. We believe in the personal, physical, powerful return of Jesus Christ to earth. We disagree about a lot of things, but we believe that Jesus is returning personally and powerfully to judge the living and the dead. Now, at this point, I could launch into a hundred different directions on the return of Christ and find scriptures to talk about almost all of them. There is no lack of New Testament scriptures. If I said that the, 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 the session of Christ is in almost every biblical, uh, from almost every biblical writer, I can take the word almost out when it comes to the return of Christ. Everybody thinks this is important. It's part of the story of every single New Testament faith and belief and writing. 
So it's a great comfort to us to know that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Listen, this world system of un- injustice and unbelief, all the stuff that you think is wrong with the world that you're tired of dealing with, whether it's politics on whatever side you are, or whether it's the people who are neglected by this system, or the, the things that happen in secret, the uh, human trafficking and the sex trafficking that goes on. What is it that you think is wrong with the world? Maybe it's wrong at your house or it's wrong at your job. Whatever's wrong with it, Jesus will come and he will make sure that everything is made right. That's our hope in the second coming of Jesus. And it is timed. As is to say, there's a timeline. We don't know what it is, but this, the problems that we have in this world are not sort of an endless cycle of wrong. They will come to an end, and Jesus will return and make things right. And when he comes, he will be known by all people and will make the whole world right and whole. This will be his final and ultimate judgment on earth, but it will also be his final and ultimate glory. This will be where his glory comes to its highest level, where Jesus is the judge. And on one level, that's terrifying because I want to make sure that I'm ready to face him with integrity and that I'm ready to face him by what he has done for me and made me whole through the cross. I will face Jesus, and I want to make sure I understand and grasp and believe in what he has done to make me ready for that moment. But it's also very comforting because of who he is. And when I'm in Christ, I have no fear of this judgment This glory will exceed the glory of the resurrection and the ascension because they were witnessed by some, and his session is hidden from our sight. But when he returns with power and great glory, the Bible says, every eye will see him. And Paul writes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does all this mean to us? I want to come back to what Jesus said to the disciples right before he ascended. Last thing he said in Acts chapter 1, you will be witnesses to me, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, the sort of city, the region, and then to the ends of the earth. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit would come, and we'll talk about him when we pick up our studies in the Apostles' Creed in a few weeks. But meanwhile, we realize that he was giving his disciples, and by extension us, meaning to life. We who remain on earth, as long as we remain, are witnesses to Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And this is a powerful text for cross-cultural motivation. It's why we send mission trips, as we did this past week, to Nicaragua. Uh, They just got back last night, and they have wonderful stories to tell about how God used their words and their acts, their servant acts of washing feet and giving away shoes. And as long as there's anybody who hasn't heard the name of Jesus, this is our mission. It is our It is our task, and we all have different roles in it. I've been in places and settings in the Christian community where, like, if you don't go and be a full-time Christian missionary, you're in some way disobeying God. Jesus does, in fact, in Acts 1, it's not even a command. It's a promise. Wherever you go, you will be my witnesses. I'm going to send you everywhere. So where you are, in your home, at your workplace, you are his witness. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so what does this have to do with this ascension and session and second coming? Quickly, and I'm done here. Do you realize that when he ascended, he's no longer physically on earth, but 
It's connected to this because we are his hands and his feet and his eyes and his mouth. His heart beat on a world that so desperately needs him. He's ascended. We are the body of Christ. Not only how, what we are to one another, but we are the physical presence of Jesus to the world around us. Because he's in heaven, he's doing this in us through the Holy Spirit. But then he sits at God's right hand. So some of you are thinking like I'm thinking. I don't do this very well. Not very good sometimes at my own witness by word, and I fail him, and sometimes my life doesn't show him very well. This is also your encouragement that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. You never have to worry, like, I wonder how Jesus is assessing my performance today. He's up there actually sticking up for you. Not that God is going like, I'd really like to get that person. But this is an image for us. He's interceding for us. He's our advocate. He knows you blow it every day. And he's going like, but you know what? That's my child. That's my daughter. That's my son. And he is interceding for you. And when you go through the hardest times and the deepest waters, he's praying for you right now. He's sitting at the right hand of God for you. And then finally, he's coming to judge. This age will not last forever. And this is our reminder that the time is short and it's getting shorter that we have less and less time to get this message all around the world to as many people as we can. We don't want his judgment to fall on anyone. He's given us a responsibility. The glory of Jesus will be complete when every person, everywhere, has the opportunity to believe. And Jesus himself said, when the gospel is preached to the whole world, then the end will come. We have an opportunity to make that happen as we continue to share Jesus around this world. What good news there is in the glory of Jesus. Let us pray together. Father, in our moments where we so desperately need encouragement, encourage us by the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And in our moments where we, both, where we most need motivation because we become lazy in our lives, help us to set our hearts above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We thank you for the privilege that we have to bear this good news, to be your witnesses in our time and place. We thank you that Corinth itself, among hundreds of thousands of churches in our generation across the world, are evidence that this promise is being lived out. May we be faithful in our generation until Jesus comes. And we pray as he taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.